Three, Chinatown. Chinatown had always smelled bad. Fishy was the polite way to put it. The only thing that smelled worse than a dead body was, Rook thought, Chinatown. On morning two of his investigation, after his psychonaut session, during which dream images loomed with noses, nostrils, and snouts, Rook took his gut hunch and headed to the Chinese pocket of Manhattan. At street level in the morning, he observed as box trucks dropped off wooden crates of bitter greens and living blue crabs. Catfish flopped in buckets, and tilapia, claimed as fresh, thawed in cardboard boxes on the dirty sidewalk. He watched as an old woman attached seven small gray fish, their bellies slit, to a pink hanger by clothespins and hung the contraption on her clothesline. The fish dangled, their dead eyes staring at the squalor next to her girdle and brassiere. The foul black air of Grand Street was her smoker. Fresh, rotting fish, Rook thought, and it was a stench so dense he could almost bite it. Angela had given him the lead to Dr. Chess, he decided, not just for the pun on game playing. Hash and blood pointed to an assassination, he believed, that either had or would take place. The epiphenomenon of Dr. Chess, he knew, was incidental, held inside the parentheses of whatever greater crime it was he had been hired to solve. The greater crime was, as yet, undefined. If he knew what it was from the beginning, he would make inferences and mistakes. Rook preferred to solve crime in reverse. His assistant, Angela, gave him a lead far removed from the crime he was hired to solve. In this instance, the phone number of Dr. Chess. Through the process of discovering the crime, he would inevitably find the guilty. It was not uncommon during the course of an investigation for Rook to come across the dead. Crime begat crime, and the motion of guilt inevitably rippled into patterns that would, in time, direct Rook's investigation. Rook was still inclined to set aside the whole of Dr. Chess. His relevance would surface eventually and focus on the man's unique powers of smell. He breathed in again the funky, fishy rot of Chinatown, thinking, somehow Angela wants me to understand the crime I'm solving literally 
stinks. He remembered the hash oil. The cultivation was another first the Chinese could lay claim to. Wandering Chinatown randomly, he let his nose guide him, sniffing for the part of Chinatown that stank the most. He switched to method and walked the Chinatown grid, perusing its small and crowded streets one by one. Window shopping, gold jewelry stores here and there, in case anyone was watching him. The stench found him before he found it, and the noxious urge to vomit queezed through him. He calmed himself mentally and breathed in again. A curtain of large black flies dodged him and nipped at his bare flesh. He brushed them away and peered into a taxidermist tannery. Inside, behind mosquito net tents that held back the flies, translucent-skinned Chinese men in white coats spattered with blood, hacked away at an eight-foot crocodile. They were seemingly oblivious to the stench, and the cheap white paper masks they wore strapped to their faces under their slashing black eyebrows were as useless as napkins. The crocodile had already been skinned, splayed open for curing and tanning. The giant crocodile skin itself seemed marked like a city street map, and it dwarfed the men who tweaked it on a rack. Several other greenish skins were already splayed and well on their way to putrefying. The stench issued not from the dead crocodile, but from the chemicals being used to prepare the skins. Shit and piss. One of the workers urinated shamelessly into a large communal white ceramic chamber pot, already foaming with bright yellow urine. Electrical wires dove from the lights in the ceiling, terminating in the pot. They were using the chamber pot for as many products as possible, Rook noted, even electricity. Credit card-sized batteries that jumped electrons from copper to magnesium through the electrolytes in urine had been the rage in Singapore and China, but not here. Bioelectrolytes could not power the world, but they did power this tannery. Keeping it, Rook surmised, off the solar empire grid. Why? Another worker used his bare feet to massage fecal matter into a putrefied skin. The very little of the dead crocodile the Chinese had no use for was the chemically decomposed, scraped skin mixed with the urine and feces. One worker 
sloughed the waste into a pit Rook assumed was filled with quicklime. The stench roller coastered his stomach. He had to leave. Further out on the street, his eyes stinging, Rook noticed the shop where the completed skins were sold. They were displayed and stacked like green Persian rugs. If somebody wanted to get rid of a human body, Rook thought, this would be the place to do it. He bought a cup of coffee from a street vendor, rolled its bitter blackness in his mouth, then took photos of the tannery and sales shop through his digitized, mirrored sunglasses. Parts of the signs were in English, and the rest were in Chinese. Back in his sedan, he sipped the coffee as a computer and trained to the sunglasses translated the signs. Respectively, each sign read Marco Polo Tannery and Marco Polo Taxidermy. Rook turned the ignition and slipped into the speeding traffic of Front Street. A small orange handball bounced into the intersection from the East River walkway, and his eyes jerked right to where a young Chinese boy maybe five, burst from his mother after the ball. Rook hit the brakes, cranked the parking brake, and leapt out into blurring, manic traffic. Amidst the rude rush of honking, Rook caught the ball on a long bounce off a yellow taxi hood and quickly tossed it to the boy. Simultaneously, traffic condensed around Rook's parked sedan, and chaos erupted. Two yellow taxis collided. One flipped skyward, twirled like an acrobat, just over Rook's head, and rolled, crashing down roof to roof on top of Rook's sedan with startling metallic thunder. Shattered windshields spattered red. Dozens of cars flooded past in panic, veering around the chaos. At its center, Rook calmly waited and watched as the boy caught the ball by reflex, halted and teetered in the gutter, awed by the destruction in the street. The white stem of a lollipop poked innocently out of his lips under his widening eyes. His mother's harsh reprimands became lost in smearing squeals as a black town car almost clipped the boy, and she jerked her son backward to safety. The lollipop ejected from the boy's lips into the gutter. Too young, Rook thought, for the void. Rook turned to the metal crunching as the upside-down yellow taxi flattened, threaded his way through traffic, and pushed into the pedestrian-crammed sidewalk before the boy and thankful mother could get a make on him. I just saved his life, 
he thought, and he just saved mine. From under the brim of his black hat, a compact pea super of overlaid, thin synthetic bands designed to keep the ever-present humid rain off his brow and to further hide his dark, always searching eyes, he called Cosmo. The sedan has been in an accident. I need a tow immediately. Five minutes later, a specialized tow truck extracted the sedan from the metal mess, and by the time Rook walked home to the Lower East Side, an identical sedan was parked in front of his door. He observed it, identical in every way to the other, down to the cracks in the upholstery. Like the tannery, his sedan was off-grid as well. Rook did not want his moves traced, and neither, he inferred, did the Marco Polo taxidermy and tannery. There's something, he thought. They don't want the Solar Empire to know. Forty-five minutes later, Cosmo Hamilton, a lanky, bold senior who favored three-piece tweeds and bright bow ties, received the wrecked sedan upstate, thinking, all is going according to plan. The tow truck driver handed Cosmo a small plastic bag, which sealed the sticky stem of the boy's orange-flavored lollipop. From the hard drives built into the sedan's computers, Cosmo extracted the past 24 hours of Rook's surveillance, and he copied the data before sending the drives to Rook by private courier. He felt annoying that even though everything was going according to plan, something was amiss. He isolated the boy's saliva from the candy and therefrom derived his DNA. Cosmo's wrinkled and liver-spotted hands placed the sample inside an atomic imager and momentarily generated an artful reproduction of the DNA. Within a monitor, which suspended wirelessly as a large tactile screen in his lab, the reproduction spread like wings of a butterfly. Cosmo touched the screen, and the alternating orange and blue colors rippled in response. He manipulated, at the quantum level, what he recognized as a DNA strain named Silk Road, and he let the reality storm, seemingly having intelligence of its own, do the rest. Simultaneously, in Midtown, on the east side of Manhattan, a plastic auction paddle with the number 113 emblazoned on it was held high for the last remaining collection of original Shakespeare Company flexible matchbooks. The man holding the paddle, 
His face crisscrossed in calcified scars, his golden eyes obscured behind lightly orange-tinted eyeglasses, held his paddle aloft for one more moment, while the auctioneer pestered the crowd for a higher bid. There was no longer any contest. Sold to 113. The man lowered his paddle, stood, and headed toward the cashier to make immediate payment by quantum currency transfer. After the sale made its way through the encrypted Federal Reserve servers, the matchbooks, a lot of 100, were carefully wrapped in a fireproof box and delivered directly to the representative of the buyer. The sinewy, bald man appeared to be in his 60s, and he was impeccably dressed in a dark, shark gray suit and pale, green, tieless shirt. He signed for the package, Mr. Jules Barbillon. He read in the yellowed company brochure, now sheathed in a museum-quality plastic sleeve, that the origin of the name of the Shakespeare Company was derived from the owner's fondness, not for the works of Shakespeare, but for his love of Shakespeare's neologisms. He read further, At the center of everyday English-speaking life, there thrives, in and on the tongues of conversationalists, a relay of phrasing lifted from the heart of the bard's ink. As much as two smokers might assist one another in the lighting of a cigarette, leaning in against the wind, hands cupped, manly faces brushing close for the inhale, so would they, inevitably, the brochure boasted, exchange gratuities and conversation between exhaled blasts of smoke. And this language might contain keywords such as archvillain or even sanctimonious. Not because these words were on their minds, but because they had been planted into their minds via the inclusion of the word, its definition, and Shakespearean origin on the inside of the matchbook. Only in America, he thought, would a man try to spread the wealth of Shakespearean idiom through the pop culture of a matchbook. Safety matches during the short-lived heyday of the Shakespeare Company had not been invented yet, and from time to time, the match striker would find his or her fingers quite suddenly holding nothing but a flame, bursting like a rose from the hissing heads as the entire book blossomed into fire. Only in New York City, he thought, would these be wanted for the purpose of poetic arson? <laughs>